1: Hi, welcome to Nick Luck Daily. It's Friday the 26th of May. Tom Stanley in for Nick. We are initially continuing our discussion of the fixture list reforms that were announced yesterday. They were covered on the podcast with Nick and Dave. We also heard from BHA Chief Executive Julie Harrington. Subsequent to that podcast airing, there was a virtual press conference held with Lydia and I in attendance. Lydia, a good few things to discuss. That is uh, Lydia Hislop from uh, Racing TV, broadcaster and journalist, of course. First question to you, Lydia. All of this has have been largely brought about with people saying that there is too much racing in this country. Do these reforms definitely mean less racing?
2: No, definitely not. Um, so there's going to be 300 fewer jump races. We know that, and that uh, will necessitate uh, the removal of some BHA-owned fixtures, um, and also perhaps the removal of, say, a race from a seven-race card, uh, make a seven-race card to a six-race card. I followed up with the BHA and asked what they imagined the net fixture list would look like, and they estimated between 20 and 25 fewer fixtures in 2024 than 2023, which is pretty much negligible. But in in concert with that there has been a loosening of the dividing races policy and that means that there are already some races being moved from the summertime into the sort of autumn winter necessarily more likely the all-weather program and during that time the rules that govern divided races have become more liberal in the words of the BHA Um, and so whilst there are not more races programmed or will not be more races programmed in 2024 due to the more liberal dividing rule we could end up with a net of more races and that it was described as agility um, in the press conference we heard a lot about agility and a lot about pivoting um, because they're responding to the available um, horse population but essentially that means more lower grade racing on the all-weather during the autumn and the winter
1: Okay so if we don't see less racing does that matter if the repointing of the fixtures and 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 the repositioning of them means more competitive racing isn't 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 competition the ultimate goal here
2: well absolutely competition has it has been decided that competitiveness is required and you that's obviously understandable a good thing but you can only work with the pieces that you have so in in terms of um lower grade racing there are many horses so we can film what short can film many races with those horses the problem comes in the tier the sort of lowest tier of the sort of pattern listed race and the upper tier of the handicap of the handicappers which is where um, British racing is leaking horses they're either being exported abroad or they're just not being trained here because of the focus of the program over a number of years towards in, increasingly towards the lower end as far as I can see in the short term what we're seeing here is likely to accelerate or extend the bottom end and at best we hope Tread water at the top end with a view to generating more income so that in the medium to long term, the upper end is better, better remunerated and better served in in Britain, but in the short term, this is a consolidation phase. In terms of the strategic uh, recovery and expansion phase, we haven't heard anything about that yet. Now, it must be pointed out that um, when I put this overview to um, Julie Harrington, the chief executive of the BHA, she didn't agree with, with that overview. But I, I don't, I, I ca- I can't see how it can be in, in any other ways, because essentially you we've got roughly the same number of fixtures. Um, you need those fixtures need at least six races per fixture the British horse population as I said is is depleted at that upper level small fields though equals less interest so we need big bigger fields. Um, That means at the upper end, fewer better races and more lesser races where there are excessive horses to fill the gap. The problem is race volume. All of the indicators are down. Foals, horses in training, down, exports, up. They indicate a downward trend over a long period of time. Meanwhile, over that same period of time, the size of the fixture list goes up. If the fixture list doesn't shrink, race volume has to be roughly maintained. So therefore, you need to have horses running to fill those races, and necessarily, if you respond agilely to the uh, horse population, what it looks like, there will be more lesser races.
1: Uh, whether or not um people are responding to this vixious reform very positively, mildly positively, mildly negatively, very negatively, shouldn't we all be in agreement that the the key positive takeaway here is that back when we were calling out for the BHA to lead and take charge. This is an example of them doing just that, no?
2: No, I don't. I don't think it is. Um, the first thing I would say I'll, before I go into that in more detail is that I I do agree with the view that doing nothing isn't an option um, because we are on a on a, a managed decline is the trajectory we're on at the moment. <laughs> this lo- looks more like managed decline um but at least some management is being done and there has been a uh, undertaking to focus on the upper level of british racing premier racing um so that in doing something is good And talking about the importance to the sport on a global platform and also to um, engaging your fan base of of the upper level, the fact that that is now being explicitly focused on where it wasn't before, that is an an unalloyed positive. Um, However, I I think it is a fallacy um, that the BHA has been given greater power by the Governance Review. I've said that repeatedly on here, um, even though the opposite is repeatedly stated. Um, you know, the given the public responsibility of leading, they, the BHA have been given publicly the responsibility of leading without having been ceded by the race forces in particular, any of the tools of power required to lead. Now, at the end of this governance process, when everything is sh- shaken, shaken down in terms of what the structure of um the industry looks like and all the committees that build up to the commercial committee and to the British Horse Racing Authority board. I predict that uh race courses collectively, now some some will, you know, it their but their business depends. So it depends on what you're talking about, where they have more or less power. But collectively I think they will have more, not less power. This dynamic will only get more and balanced as in in their direction as the governance um, review recommendations play out, you know I, I do believe that many within the industry genuinely believe that they 've given the bHA the office to lead, but I think it 's been so long the other way that most people have forgotten and others have never known what it looks like to have centralized leadership um, and if you take take why I think an example of why I think it 's a fallacy it's the fixture list. So essentially the BHA is leading on the areas of the chessboard that it has any control of and with the chess pieces of which it has control but does it have full control of the chessboard absolutely not because if you look at the 2024 fixture list one of the things that was immediately off limits and you can go back to David Armstrong um the chief executive of the race Course association saying at the start of the year essentially that um the solution um, going forward or the the first steps going forward wouldn't necessarily be a cut in the fixture list he's indicated that uh, trainers should be considering running their horses more often now basically what that said tacitly and what we have seen playing out is that the, that the size of the fixture list the fixtures Apart from the ones essentially that the BHA owned themselves were off limits, and so the BHA had to within the fixture list had to work with what they got, which is how to move races around in order to to fulfil that fixture list. And as I've already explained, that means that in order to to fill the fixture to fill the fixture list and the brief, the races needed to be more competitive. That necessarily means more lesser races.
1: So I infer from what you're saying, correct me, if, correct me if I'm wrong, that the race courses still have too much control, in your opinion, of, of the chessboard. If that was the case, the Sanderson's wouldn't be threatening court action. Chester representatives wouldn't have appeared on this podcast and and, and uh, announced their um, disappointment at the proposed changes and, and the fact that they might have to change their chi- times on a Saturday, for example. Surely the, the race courses, by and large, would be happier with the suggested reforms?
2: I think it's a a fair point you make, and that's where I come back to certain measures will advantage certain race courses and potentially disadvantage other race courses. The uh, racecourses who were unhappy with the proposed window um, of competitiveness, the, the, the shop window on Saturdays of, of two premier fixtures and a third fixture uh, being the only fixtures that take place between the peak customer engagement period of between 2 to 4 p.m. usually, um, their, their protest Um, against that came with a lot of power. Behind it, didn't it? In in terms of you know their their control of those particular, particular fixtures, the the reminder essentially that they are are deemed to in inverted commas own those fixtures, and that if they didn't, that that could potentially be challenged in court. Now, yesterday, Julie Harrington was saying that those um, those racecourse representatives have a seat around the table. They have been listened to. They've been engaged with, and a way forward um, is is being found, or that that needs to. Be hammered out in terms of the detail and whether there is is compensation, but essentially um, the, the race courses have collectively, to some degree, signed up to um, some sort of change. Yes, that is there. There will be winners. There will be losers. I don't think we've seen necessarily the the end of um, the uh, the the threats or the the fi- the feeling that that um, that there is some 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 of this yet to play out. If I look at who I think is most, um, advantage has most of the cards to play here I would suggest that would be jockey club race courses and the arena racing company or arc clearly the uh, large independents also have um a lot of power when it comes to the uh, arena of um top flight racing being globally relevant having the uh, premier fixtures uh having the shop window on, on itv you know they're in, a, in in very very good shape there um also those race courses that run a lot of um lower end particularly all weather racing are also in very good shape here so that would be arc and also to a great degree the jockey club although arc particularly because it has more all weather um, tracks. Uh, and there in, in that landscape, clearly there are some race courses who are less well served by that. So yes, there is some movement, but do I think the BHA is free to lead and free to make centralized decisions? I think the fictionalist tells you that that's not the case. I think that it would look very different because essentially the race volume is the problem. It doesn't, you know, there are there are too many races for the available horse population if you want to maintain a pyramid of, um, of races, whereby you, you, it's an incentivized structure. There is a hierarchy, and that we have the appropriate level of horses of the of, of the appropriate rating at each level. And so, obviously, the idea is that you have fewer of the very best, but then it gradations down to a um, a, a broad pyramid base. That pyramid base is uh, it was already quite long and flat, and it's only going to get longer and flatter.
1: Okay, we need to talk about Sunday. Uh, one of the, um, the 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 biggest fallouts, I think, from this negative fallout, certainly, was reaction from racing's workforce, largely trainers, uh, the proposed changes to Sunday and Sunday evening fixtures. Obviously, w- we already have some form of Sunday evening fixture, notably the Skybet Sunday series, but that sees incre- increased prize money. That's largely been received very positively in its third year, I think, now. Um, some of the tweets that went out, Dave Nane Racing said, well done, BHA Horse Racing. Once again, absolutely no thought or consideration has been put into what's best for the staff and people that are the backbone of our sport with some um, rather negative hashtags. Stuart Williams, I'm all for trying something new. What we're doing now is not working for many people, but Sunday night racing in the winter is one of the most stupid ideas the BHA has ever had, and they have had a few. David ben I think they should introduce night racing as well, starting at 3 a.m. to try and attract the Aussie market while they're having a beer at lunchtime. That will teach the lazy stable staff if they refuse to go racing Sunday evening. Uh, 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 Whether or not that represents every trainer's view, I don't know, but um, they're clearly singing from a a similar hymn sheet. Uh, I guess this is all part of the point which I really took from the, the press conference yesterday, that Sunday evening was the only sort of, time we had Lydia with no racing uh, other than the, the the infrequent Skybet Sunday series we now fill that void as well it, it, Julie Harrington talks about a shop window it it feels more a betting shop window these changes be it the premier, premierization on a Saturday afternoon the, the racing on a Sunday evening it feels these are all very betting centric decisions and perhaps not good for the person walking through the door and seemingly not great for racing's workforce.
2: I think that is inarguable. But again, throughout the press conference yesterday, as you remember, um, Julie Harrington argued the opposite. In the short term, I can only see that this is squeezing the lemon, isn't it? And you say that the Sunday evening floodlit fixtures is the only point in the in the calendar where we British Racing doesn't race, And that that's, that's right. And the only uh, market that that can possibly be attracting uh, or appealing to is the stay-at-home Uh, betting market Uh, I you know a a, a winter Sunday evening to go all weather racing is not most people's idea of, of an attractive night out you can see that any night of the of the week um, weekdays um, in, in, during the, the same period and also there's a knock-on cyclical effect to that in that because race courses are expecting fewer com- customers the number of facilities that are available to those customers who actually go through the door are actually reduced so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because it's quite an unattractive experience when they're going there as well and I know that Julie Harrington referred to monitoring what a race goers think about Sunday evening floodlit fixtures, but uh, uh, as, as far as I can see, you have to have to be correct about this. In that we've got those Sunday evenings, um, we've got more um, all weather racing in the winter. We've got. F- Uh, smaller cards in the summer, so six race rather than seven race cards when people are more likely to go racing and bigger cards, so like nine race cards potentially with the more liberalised dividing rules in the all-weather winter when nobody goes through the door. Now, clearly you're playing for a a longer term attractiveness by having this two-hour shop window and an enhanced Premier Racing tier that those will become much more attractive and that they will drive interest in the sport and that those will balance out. But I don't see that playing out in the short term because we already have the shop window of ITV racing focusing on the best meetings on a Saturday, the what the people who will be affected on Saturday are those people who might want to go during the height of the afternoon to their local race course on a Saturday afternoon and they won't have that opportunity to do so. So again, the customer who walks through the door isn't the one being prioritised at that time. It is hoped that in the medium to long term, and I think David Jones, who was in charge of the Commercial Committee, actually used hope, the word hope at one point, um, Yes uh, the, the primerization you said that um through primermorization, the hope is that it lifts everything else you know that it lifts everything now that that is what this is all predicated on the hope that 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 this works that via getting by maximizing the betting I- I- income and doing everything to increase the betting in- income that you will get a better Um, long-term product and of course in terms in the plus side as well for the race guys I should have mentioned better quality racing on Sunday afternoons that is clearly a a a positive and I would say an an alloyed positive
1: yes and and just just on that I mean hope I appreciate we, we we perhaps wanted more figures um to come out yesterday but I mean these these things haven't happened yet change is hope isn't it that is Mm-hmm. We, we have nothing to go on just yet this is essentially being billed as a as a two-year trial which is full of hope do you
2: think two years is long enough
1: well i think it's safe because it was likely to ruffle a good few feathers and had they billed it as more than a two-year trial it it, it there's still the the hope for some of those out there that don't agree with this that after two years um, we'll will instigate some other change, or some parts will go back. I think it would have been riskier to go for a a five year trial, for example.
2: Yes, I think it will be very easy in the short term to to prove um, that uh, more competitive racing necessarily at the lower end will have in, improved betting turnover. I think that will be a very easy prove. It's very it's much more difficult to prove things that are are less. Evidently tangible. That's why I'm hoping that within the uh, data, because we kept hearing about data-driven um, information. But again, like you, I felt that m- that data was overwhelmingly related to to betting. And unlike um, the industry, I'd make a distinction between punters and bookmakers um, in terms of you know what what they might necessarily want. But anyway, um, so I think it'll be very easy to prove um, a, an improvement in in terms of that. I would urge the industry to also include um, more um, intangible things like what gets people through the door of, uh, you know, to attend uh, race courses. You know, that that might be a a top class horse. That top class horse might be running in a forerunner runner race on occasion. We hope that that won't happen that often, but on occasion it might do. Um, And so there needs to be things such as Attendance figures and barb figures, TV figures, which tell you when most people have tuned in to to watch horse racing, to be fed in alongside betting turnover, because there has to be some kind of countermeasure to uh, weigh the worth inverted commas of um, races and of a particular uh, strata of racing to the sport as opposed to just purely what uh, a proliferation of competitive lower grade racing brings to the sport uh, i should stress when i'm talking about lower grade i'm not meaning this in any sort of critical kind of way uh, i i have a, a tenth share in two horses that very much run in this kind of grade and as a racing fan i i'm interested in competitive racing at that grade but in terms of the long-term future and growing the growing the the fan base uh, and uh, trying to get people coming into the sport, what really matters is the idea that Britain still competes on an elite global stage, and that's in terms of the uh, best best horses, but also in the in the long term, um, making sure that the best trainers and jockeys stay here as well, and that is uh, of concern, and that is something that we that British racing needs to retain as well.
1: Well, George McGraw is the Chief Executive of the National Association of, of Racing Staff. And uh, George, I, I wanted to just get your, your views really from a staffing perspective. Uh, we, we've seen some of the uh, comments from, from trainers read this. Where, where do you? How does it sit with you, George? Look, Tom, any racing that takes place on a Sunday is not going to be met
3: with much joy by the racing staff. But I think we need to understand that Sunday racing alone isn't the biggest issue. The issue around Sunday racing and why it's so is because it is still, by and large, the only clear day the staff get off every two weeks. So if you put a meeting on that day and they've got to go racing, then you're basically saying you're going to work a month before you get a day off. And that's only if you don't have a runner on that next Sunday off. If we had more modern-day working practices where staff had one clear day off every week or even two as they do at Nick Alexander's, then the Sunday racing itself isn't quite as emotive. It's never going to be universally popular. I have to accept that. We also have to accept that we're in the entertainment industry and we need to put our product in a place where the public can access it, whether that's attending in person or whether that's
1: So, so if we are seven day a week entertainers, if that is what the racing industry is, should the onus be on trainers, on employers to ensure that there is best working practice in place for their staff so that they're not relying on Sundays off, they, they, they get different days off through the week?
3: Sunday, half of the staff would be off-roader, and we still manage for the show on the road, and we still look after our horses. So if you can do this on the busiest days racing, when you're on a Saturday or a Sunday, and your manager would have the staff off-roader, why on earth can you not do it on a Monday, and a Tuesday, and a Wednesday, and a Thursday, and a Friday? The concept of everybody coming back for evening stables every day, to me is ridiculous, and you're talking to someone who's worked in the racing industry for 35 years, and the
1: George, appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Bye. Okay, last night at Sandown, it was Brigadier Gerard Knight. Oh, Lydia and I can, can reflect on that. We'll start actually with um, with Carl Burke, reflecting on his two-year-old, who was simply brilliant in the national stakes. Here's Carl. Elite status. We were very impressed with him at Sandown last night. Um, I,
4: th- I think it was an excellent performance, Tom, and, you know, he's, he's a cult with a, with a big
1: future. We hope um, an, an absolute given that he goes Norfolk. I would be I would be surprised if we step him up at this stage of his career. As you can see, he um, you know he has a he has a huge turn of foot, and
4: the the, the stiff five at Royal Ascot will suit him well. He can only sharpen again for that um, for that run yesterday. I mean, first time out was really just an exercise canter for him on soft ground, and going into to last night's race, I was a little not I was a little bit concerned that they would go very quick and we might be a little bit um, lost on the faster ground um, early on and then getting in the pockets which I was didn't want because, you know, as you could see he's got a fantastic long stride for a sprinter mm-hmm. and, um, you know, but anyway it all worked out really well and I would have no qualms about him um, running over five again.
1: So Havana Gray's having some season.
4: Amazing. Amazing. We were talking about it uh, on the way home. I mean, he was... Uh, he was, a, he was a very good racehorse himself, but, but I mean he's absolutely um, excelled himself at stud so far. And you know the great thing is they they're, they're getting a the trip. He was very much a five furlong horse, but they're getting a the trip and they they're training on. You know they're three year olds.
1: And obviously you had the the one two again. You had the the one two in the Marygate. You've had the one two again last night with Wilder Darcy. How do you see his career developing?
4: Yeah, he's a very talented horse himself. Um, he hung a little bit yesterday, Ryan sort of said he hung left most of the way and it was markedly so when he had to switch round a horse off the rail in the final furlong, he definitely went to the, to the left. He didn't do that first time out, although he was on a left-handed rail there at Pontefracts, so not sure what's going on there, but we'll just uh, run our hands over him and, and see if there's anything physical there. Um, he's a good horse,
1: I would say he'll go to the Windsor Castle and he'll go there with a with a good, solid fighting chance. OK, touch on this weekend. You, you've got a lot of runners, but the main two are going to be cold case and, and dramatised in the Sandy Lane and Temple Stakes, respectively. Uh, was there ever a chance they were going to take each other on or not? No, no, Cole Case is very much a six-stroke, seven-furlong horse and, and Dramatise is very much a five-furlong filly. So, that no, they, they were never going to take each other on. Marshman was a potential for the Sandy Lane, but we decided to go to York there last week with him. Um, two of them are in great form, very, very happy with now with, uh, with their condition. Cole Case definitely has step
4: forward fitness-wise for his run in the Group 3 at uh, Ascot. The ground he would definitely prefer a little bit more juice in the ground but it sounds as though I'm going to hate up myself today so it sounds as though they've watered well and I'm sure it would be fine but a stiffer track a stiffer test would probably suit him better but you know he's, he's he's ready to run and um, Sandy Lane is a lovely race if we can win it. Or you know hopefully um, he'll run a, put up a big show. He's in grateful. Four
1: um, and dramatised. Obviously, you know she was she was pretty pretty smart and sharp and early last year. Do you believe she retains all the all the speed and ability?
4: Yeah, I think so. I think so. She's um, she's much more relaxed at home than she was last year. She was very much uh, like sitting on a stick of dynamite. Dan, uh, Danny used to say, you know, as a two-year-old." Um, her trip to, to California, oh, sorry, to, to America last year, to, to Kentucky, um, she grew up a lot mentally and she's brought that home with her. She's a lot more, she's still, you know, you still have to watch her and she still can be revved up very easily, but she's definitely grown up mentally and physically. She looks stronger filly Philly again. Her work's been good, but we haven't, um, you know, this is very much a prep run for Ascot. And, and we're very much sort of gearing her up for a sort of mid-end of season to, you know, race back to back to Breeders' Cup in California. You know, that's her main target and probably the Nunthorpe. So whatever she does tomorrow, she'll improve on. But I'll be disappointed she doesn't show us plenty of ability.
1: OK, and that's King Stand, is it? Ask it.
4: Kingstand,
1: yeah. she's only in the Kingstand. basket, right. yeah. I mean, that's going to be a very tough race. she will want to run very well tomorrow
4: to warrant going there. But um, as I say, I, I'd be um, I'd be disappointed if she doesn't show us a lot of uh, a, a lot of talent again tomorrow. Whether it's good enough to win first
1: time out, I I, I don't know, but um, we will see. We'll give it a go. Lydia, your your thoughts? What did you make of that juvenile performance?
2: Yeah I thought it was it was a very strong performance indeed um a really big step up from when he went on different ground at Doncaster on his debut he was pretty devastating here really storming clear um having made his effort out wide towards the center of the track he was leading over a furlong out and he ran on really strongly it was it was a, a really exciting and good performance and i suppose if you think back to i mean we're we're only now moving into the sort of listed level of, of two year old races you know royal ascot will start bringing the more elite level races but carberg also had the 1 2 in the listed marygate the Phillies race at, at york as well for for two year olds so you know he's a, he often has a strong juvenile and sprinting team and it seems to be no different this time around
1: okay what about the, the brigadier Gerard? it was well it was definitely a surprise as as far as the market would have it it was uh it, it, it i think it was a very positive result as well owen burrows and and the, the the hard luck he had last year certainly with his three top horses Hakum being one of them to get this horse back out of retirement off an injury and beat a derby when it was a was quite the performance lydia
2: it really was. I mean, he, if, if we think back to last year and his performance in the Coronation Cup, which was when he s- suddenly looked like a, an elite Group 1 horse, up until then he'd look like a, um, not, not a nearly horse, that would be unfair, but a horse of a, of a lot of talent. Um, that you wondered whether he was going to be able to put it all together. He did so to devastating effect in the Coronation Cup and then devastatingly, it turned out that he had sustained a fracture in a hind leg whilst doing so. So we hadn't seen him until last night um, for the Brigadier Gerard. And going into the race, I mean, this is very easy to say and it is is after timing at this stage, but I mean, he had the best form going into the race. That Coronation Cup form was better, against uh, horses of multi-generations, was better than Desert Crown's win in the derby albeit a strong looking derby one of the better derby w- wins of this century and comfortably doing so as well but you know that was his one performance at group one level against just his own generation here coming back from um a a, a Being sidelined since then, and of course Hookham has been sidelined from about the same time as well. Um, He was facing the toughest rival that he'd seen so far, and a horse that had, you know, one better, at least one better, and certainly more consistently better runs because he'd been given the opportunity to do so as an older horse and campaigning more in Group One level in the book. So um, the market had a high degree of expectation that the brilliance we'd seen from from Desert Crown would immediately translate into victory in the Brigadier. Gerard a race that we know that his trainer Sir Michael Stout uses very very well as a launch pad for better things later on in the campaign um, I thought coming out of the race I thought that was a, a group three race fought out by two proper group one horses uh, Cash went through to to attack first having pulled quite hard he's quite mercurial but he has quite a bit of ability and Desert Crown covered his move straight away seemed to uh, dispense with him quite easily at that point Hookham had been slightly outpaced slightly in, in, in a pocket but he came out uh, after Desert Crown um, pretty pretty quickly and ran him down neither of them stopping to, to, towards the line the feeling um, from the um, Sir Michael Stout uh, camp was that they were disappointed They uh, based on his work going Going into Sandan, they had expected him um, to win, but I don't think they should be too downhearted because I think this—this this were these are two proper horses who are going to feature at the top table throughout the rest of the season.
1: Where would you put Bay Bridge in that field? Where would he have finished over that distance? A Bay Bridge as fit as Desert Crown was.
2: Um,
1: Bay Bridge, who's who, I think is set with just before Dex or around about Dex. As we recording this, he is set to reappear in the, the Tattersall's Gold Cup this weekend
2: which looks like a very very oh, edition of the cup you know if most of them stand their ground and that is going to be a corker of a race um right up there uh potentially 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 winning it um
1: yes. <laughs> i i i i think so. yeah that's that's where i'd have him um but over...
2: not I, not 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 necessarily comfortably though i mean he's he's consistently shown his form and if you think about his champion stakes win, that was that was brilliant. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would have him probably as 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 just winning. How about you? What do you think? Mm,
1: yeah, I'd, I'd have him on top of the two of them. Um, I think there was a, a little bit of unsexiness about Hakum factored into his price. Like he is compared to a derby winner, an unbeaten derby winner trained by Sir Michael Stout. There's something about Hakum, which up until yesterday... It isn't all that attractive a proposition i I don't think for all this romance with his story, hopefully that will change now um yeah, but they,
2: six years of age yes. I suppose is one of one of the elements, and as I was saying that that he ha- he didn't really make a breakthrough until the Coronation cup, and I suppose mm. people might say the coronation cup is that really an elite group one? I mean I thought it, think it took a top class performance to win it in that fashion and beat pile driver that way,
1: and there is part of me that looks back at last year's derby. Now I know West came out and won the Irish derby, but doesn't look on it so fondly as a group of horses as I did at the time. That said, I still look at, look on desert crowns performance in it and think it was, it was, it was simply brilliant. Um, yeah. I also, I also, I also don't buy into any idea that desert crown will be better suited by going back up in distance. I think he will be at his best over 10 this year. And I think Baybridge might conversely be a stronger stayer than him, but I'm, I'm, Yes, I'm more. I'm more bought into Bay Bridge love than I am Desert Crown love at this stage. Cue oh, him getting trounced on Sunday.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I I agree with you about the um the point about the Derby, but he was much the best, wasn't he, in 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 that race? And Westover is pretty good um and um as it it turns out west wind blows has turned out to be pretty good so you know there are pockets of, of of strength within the derby and desert crown was clearly bossing that field like you the way he won it albeit it was a strongly run race the way he won it suggested that he should be at least equally if not more effective at 10 furlongs i'm interested by your bay bridge better over a mile and a half point i haven't really thought about that i'll be honest
1: well, I see him as a, I think he might just be a stronger stayer than than Desert Crown. I thought that, you know, when you when you win a champion stakes on that ground, you tend to, if they're going to be campaigned separately, if, then I think we might see Bay Bridge as the one to be tried up in trip and Desert Crown perhaps to come back to 10. Who, who would sit with you more as an arc horse? For me, it'd be Bay Bridge over Desert Crown.
2: Yes, I think it probably would be. Certainly you mentioned the grand um capability as well. I think that might be it might be well be important. I certainly see Desert Crown as a as a ten furlong type horse. Mm. I was thinking Prince of Wales' stakes. Uh, I know that in the press huddle immediately afterwards it was the King George that was repeatedly mentioned, but I would have thought there'd be the little matter of of the of Royal Ascot in between. Mm. And Baybridge will have to see what happens at the current this Sunday.
1: Yeah. Uh, while we're on the Curra this Sunday, then that looks an an absolute corking race. Vardany having been supplemented, Luxembourg, Bay Bridge, etc. The um, Irish Guineas, um, it, we, we're set to see uh, Meditate and and Tahira going head to head again. What are your views on that?
2: Well, um, I think the ground is going to be interesting, isn't it? Um, what is it at the moment at the Curra? Is it good to firm? Is that is that right? What they're what they called? I'd be it? No, lying no, if I'm I. Go on. I'm wrong. Good, good, and watering at the moment. It's good and watering.
1: Okay, and uh, I haven't got Dexter in front of me just yet, so we're we're flying by the seat of our pants a little bit. But um, if if we're looking at, I don't think there's much rain around. If, if we're looking at far side of good to hear, to hear her odds on meditate. She was disappointing at, at Newmarket, wasn't she?
2: Yeah, but Tahira's never raced on anything faster than good to soft, mm. and she's got that excellent second a narrow second against morge in the 1000 guineas on 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 soft on ground on the softer side um, and she looked as though she would definitely improve for that run. And the two of them were very dominant in the field, but she's going to have to prove herself on a faster surface. And Meditate looked rusty to me. Uh, I can't believe that that is the Meditate we're going to see at that level this season. I think she will be a much sturdier opponent for Tahira this time around. And I think a sounder surface as well. We know that she handles that. Um, We don't know that yet about Tahira.
1: Okay, another bit of news emerging yesterday. uh, Paddy Power have been fined for sending promotional messages to self excluded customers. Lydia, what do we know?
2: Yes, it's a £490,000 fine from the uh, Gambling Commission because uh, the app sent push notifications to customers who had marked themselves as self-excluded. This dates from November 2021. Uh, and bookmakers, who regularly listens to the podcast will know I enjoy making this joke, uh, always refer to these things as legacy issues, this legacy from just 18 months ago. Um, the Ian Brown, who is the chief executive of Flutter UK and Ireland, said that the uh, push notifications were sent in error, that this was rectified immediately, and that they proactively contacted the Gambling Commission and that the Gambling Commission had received no complaints. Flutter, of course, is the parent company to Paddy Power. They're also the parent company to Skybet, who in March 2022 had to pay a £1.17 million fine from the Gambling Commission um, because they'd sent promotional emails to the self-excluded. The overarching point about this is that this is, at best, blunder after blunder after blunder from the betting industry in terms of being able to uh, self-regulate and take responsibility in the area of addicted customers and here this is customers who have tried to take responsibility for their addiction by marking themselves out as excluded. This is the kind of behavior from gambling companies that created the anti-gambling climate that we're all now reaping the whirlwind from.
1: Right there's a new US racing venture and to tell us a little bit more here's Nick Luck.
0: Hi, Tom. Well, you'll have heard of the NFL, obviously, the NBA, the NHC, the MLB. You'll have also heard of the Racing League. Now, a concept in the United States aims to marry the idea of team racing with a really successful American sporting franchise. So please welcome in the NTL, the National Thoroughbred League, which begins with a series of five events called Cups that will feature three races run consecutively, Uh, all tagged on to existing race meets and each of the six teams will have a horse in each race that will be worth a set number of points and these franchises have been backed by some huge financiers and entrepreneurs across the United States. Uh, One of the brains behind this operation is Tom Lute who you might remember from such ventures as the Breeders' Cup and also Santa Anita Park and he joins me now Tom to tell me a little bit more about the mechanics of this and how it's going to work well and and
5: just so you know the brains is really randall lane from forbes and bob Doherty who's a financial man from california they were the guys that formed the idea and they took the concept of what's really working in america and why is horse racing trending in the wrong direction from fan happiness or attendance and and the team concept is obviously the glaring issue you know obviously we have a lot of issues regulations and individual tracks without commissioners but the bottom line was how could we have an impact and we felt like you know with the idea that the general fan loses interest because the horses disappear and there's not constant you know good messaging this was an idea and the idea is that we're going to own the horses well, will then lease them back to the individual franchises, the cities that buy the teams. But hopefully we can create stars that race four or five years. That at the same time, we can start developing fan interest by the city. So we'll have cities competing against cities within our race carts.
0: I suppose the thing that really interested me, particularly in relation to the similar concept that's been tried in the UK, is that you are actually buying the racehorses. You're owning the horses. And immediately, not an alarm bell, but just a, a warning note sounded to say... Okay. How is this going to um, be sustained from a from a welfare care point of view, particularly after the horses have run? You've obviously considered that.
5: Yeah, and that's actually one of the big components of why it's team-oriented that way. And we've set our organization up very much like the professional sports in America. The franchisees own one a percentage of the league. So if there's going to ultimately be 12 teams, you'd own one twelfth of the league. Obviously, we're starting out, as, as you've seen, there's six teams. So at, at the moment... If you own the Nashville team, you own one-sixth of the league, and that's where the participation in the horses comes from the standpoint we're making a commitment. We're making a commitment from the time that we take possession of the horse that we're responsible for, for it for life. So, for instance, if we buy a horse... we want to make sure the horse continues to race versus being retired early obviously economics will come into play but we want to see you know hopefully we develop great horses and there can be followings and robberies that carry on more than one year that gives us the league because the league has the power to make not make but control the decision making that the horse continues to race but most importantly on your question we've made a commitment and partnership with the taa the thoroughbred aftercare lines here in America that we will be responsible with them helping us place the horse financially forever
0: I suppose the fundamental question is can can horse racing as a team sport capture the capture the public's imagination uh, j- just explain how the how the logistics and the mechanics of it work
5: well, and that's, you know, that's the that's the million-dollar question. But we think that how you do that is as you reach into the chain, you listen, it's not the society that I was raised in. This is a whole new world. And that's why you talk about some of the uh, singers and actors and celebrities that we're going to attract, because we think you have to really reach outside of the traditional equine horse racing box. So our whole strategy is, like, we, we start off in Nashville, and we're going to have Uh, a very private special concert we haven't signed the contract yet so we can't announce who it's with but we'll have a great event in Nashville we'll have festivities and things to do then at the same time we're gonna transfer that to the racetrack and we're gonna try to take that audience and bring them in and we believe our audience will be non-racehorse people obviously there will be a crossover but by bringing celebrities by bringing different people to the track and creating an environment like I'll give you one small example, and and I hope I hope it works, and hope every track does this. But you know, if you look at at least American sports, we have professional ex professional athletes that are in the booth, and why not have jockeys? Talk about it among your group of analysis, analyzing what just took place. Nothing against Nick Luck and Tom Lutz in the world, but we don't ride horses. <laughs> and, you know, when you hear the punter or the gambler say, Why didn't that horse, why didn't that jockey shoot through that hole? Why not have a guy that's sitting there that's either the jockey that was on the horse, if you can grab him real quick, or a Mike Smith or Chantel Sutherland that you've seen in the press release where we've got them on as just, uh, ambassadors to analyze the race afterward, just like you see. And, and, and this is you know but don't, we,
0: don't we do not we do that anyway with Gary Stevens, Jerry Bailey, Richard Migliore, they, they're great analysts of, uh, of horse racing tactics
5: Yeah and I agree but we want to do it after every race and we want to try to grab the jockey, we want to do things that are what we believe educational tools to bring people into the game, we am just going to concentrate on it more, I mean one of the things that Bob and Randall did before I got involved they did a lot of surveys and studies and you know they were focused on why are people not coming to the racetrack and and a big part especially in America is it's no longer on television on a regular basis and they don't understand it so we really want to put in an educational part of this as we get new people to the track we're going to have concentrated efforts in our areas where we have our guests of teaching them what's going on and that's that's just one example i'm referencing i just i think it would be really neat especially if the jockey doesn't have a ride in the next race if he can spend five minutes explaining the decisions he made and as we know sometimes it's going to be good sometimes it's going to be a mistake it happens and as you know, as a gambler, we love to criticize them all the time, but we're not on that horse going down that race and making that decision.
0: Uh, what about the venues, Tom? Uh, which venues have you lined up to, to host the, uh, the NTL?
5: The first, you know, the first. I've been working on this for a while. Unfortunately, it's taken longer than I thought it would. And one of the things people don't understand yet, because we just announced, there's a. It's a pretty big organization. We have an event team. That's not my strength. So we have a whole organization. We got a marketing team, a social media team, a sponsorship team. So we're trying to align all that. Took longer than we wanted to get started, but we're here. And so we're starting off Labor Day weekend at in Nashville. We run the races at Kentucky Downs. Right after that we come out to the west coast, Emerald Downs up in Seattle, Washington. We then turn around and go to Meadowlands in New Jersey, New York. It's got we're tied in. It'll be a really fun event there. Some of the events are further along. The New York Food and Wine Festival has partnered with us, so we're going to have celebrity chefs at the track. A quick side note, that's important, what we felt like we need to do. We need themes, and we need to get people that are traditionally not going to be attracted to a racetrack. So we're having those activities at the track, and I think that'll be a really good test. We're going to have celebrity chefs. I think there's eight different celebrity chefs going to be at that track that night. So you'll have foodies that might not have any interest in the races, and we want to introduce them to it. But after that, we come out to Los Angeles. Uh, we're running at Los Alamitos on Saturday night, try something different in L.A. And then our championship this first year. Uh, and I think this is exciting to see some how some of the tracks have received this. We were originally running in early December, but Tampa Bay Downs thought it would be really neat to tie it in since it is our championship meet. We're going to have it uh, New Year's Eve, December 31st. And there's a big football bowl game. On uh, January first, there. So we're going to have a really hopefully championship celebration weekend on New Year's Eve.
0: Uh, Tom, all the entertainment sounds uh, sounds fantastic uh, and and very absorbing and and it's a, a an innovative series. Uh, is it entirely self contained in terms of its in terms of its administration and regulation? Is it your rules, your show, or does it fall under the auspices of uh, any state legislature, governing bodies, HISA, etc.?
5: We will, because we travel state uh, lines, we will, and we're running races within a normal race card, so we're absolutely following the state uh, guidelines of racing. It'll be run by their racing rules, their stewards. We're very supportive, and HISA will be a big part of it. But as far as the actual racing itself, it's 100% within the state jurisdictions. The only thing that we can go above and beyond is the league can create rules and procedures for the league owners and trainers that we can imply certain things. But we're not here to meddle with the racing. We're trying to re. I mean, the whole purpose of this league is to reintroduce and re-energize the general fan and really the new fan back to horse racing. These guys are uh, traditionalists, and they they really want to see the crowds back at the tracks. And I think that's why it's such a great opportunity.
0: Tom, thanks so much for talking to me. Uh, Good luck with it. It sounds fascinating. Really appreciate your time today.
5: You bet. Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Back with Lydia, just a tip from you, please.
2: OK, I'm looking ahead to Saturday evening and the last chance saloon at Salisbury, the final race, the 8.40. And I'm going to go for Whimsy. This is a horse that won a very competitive handicap at Salisbury over two furlongs shorter last season. Um, since then, I don't really think she's had the, uh, the um, circumstances that really see her to best effect, although she's held her form really well for the re- rest of last season. She ran poorly at Chester over a, a very long trip, two mile, two and a half furlong. And in soft ground, the latter being the most important thing, you should have hated that. Um, I think she's on a, a very viable mark. Um, she her run style generally suits Salisbury, even though this race might be quite strongly run. I still think she'll be fine. So it is Whimsy in the eight forty at Salisbury um, on Saturday.
1: Lydia, thank you. That was Friday, the twenty sixth of May. Look out for the Saturday edition that will be out with Charlotte a little bit later on. Have a lovely weekend. Bye bye.